Mighty God and everlasting one, we come before you asking, pleading with you that your spirit would minister to us this morning as we look at this passage of Genesis 18. We ask, Lord, that you would bring to light what you would have us to understand and know. Help us, O God, to hear the word by the Spirit. Help the word to be preached well. Let their unction be placed in our midst this morning. Let the word of God be preached with unction. That your grace might minister to us and that we might be the better and more sanctified for it. We so pray that your ministry would be evident in our midst. We ask that you would just simply help us to understand the simplicity of the word this morning. And we so ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Follow along as I read Genesis chapter 18, verses 1 through 15. Then the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre, as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and bowed himself to the ground and said, My Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please, let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass by, inasmuch as you have come to your servant. They said, Do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and good calf, gave it to a young man, and he hastened to prepare it. So he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared, and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree as they ate. Then they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, Here in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore, Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child, since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to us. We have, in this particular section, the unannounced appearance of God. The Lord, as we see, as Moses wants us to know as a fact, that God has come and appeared to Abraham. The Lord is one who appears. God communes with his people. God communes with his friends. Abraham was sitting beneath the terebinth tree of Mamre. He was cooling himself. And the Lord showed up. He lifted his eyes. He looked. Three strangers 
were standing by him. As a hospitable host, he runs to greet them as they draw near. Now, it may be that many wanderers traveled by, but here, knowing God's sovereign power, Abraham is hospitable to those strangers God has brought by. And at the particular point in the narrative that Abraham goes out to meet them, he has no idea that these men are a little different. It's important to see that Abraham didn't know that these men were coming on behalf of the Lord and that the Lord was in the midst of them. He simply saw three strangers. His response to them was of utmost respect as what would happen as the manner and custom of the day. He acted in a civil manner. He bowed to the ground, and it doesn't mean that he bowed low to worship. Uh, the word itself shows us otherwise. It simply means that he was respectful towards them. He called them Lord as a sign of respect. The Hebrew word there is not Adonai. It's a derivative of that, which simply means Sir or Lord. Abraham doesn't know that these men have anything to do with God, at least not yet. He says, if I have found favor in your sight, don't pass by your servant, rest yourselves. He was being hospitable. And a man showing grace and hospitality would do these things. Yet, Moses, in the way that he writes this narrative, wants the reader, that's us, to understand a bit more. Because he adds in the commentary, for our sake, and says, the Lord appeared to him. That is, Yahweh. The objective for Abraham was to help the weary travelers. So he informs his tent, he informs his family of the need for baking and cooking, and that they all attend to their services and their stations. He has a very well-kept home, and he had a very expensive meal prepared for them. Their feet would have been washed, their stomachs filled, and rest would have helped them to continue on their journey. And so he demonstrates self-sacrifice here, hospitality here. And verse 8 says that they ate. It's kind of interesting for the reader, knowing that this is the Lord, that he ate food. Just as Christ ate on the beach with his disciples after the resurrection in John 21, here the Lord partakes of a fellowship meal, which Moses is trying to remind us of close communion that God has with his people. Whether it is three or one that is the Lord is more clearly cleared up, I think, by chapter 19, where the two that leave are called angels, which go to Sodom and Gomorrah. In any case, eating a meal together for these people was a sign of reception, was a sign of fellowship. And there's great significance in the intimacy that's noted here by Abraham. And God took careful note of his friend. Then, the question comes. And in verse 9, the Lord begins to speak, saying things that only the Lord would have known. Where is Sarah, your wife? How would they know? Only God would have known. What would have been going through Abraham's mind at that particular point? Only God knew the name he had given him. Abram to Abraham. Sarai to Sarah, covenant. His answer 
is quick and short. She's in the tent. I will return to you according to the time of life, and behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. So in verse 10, God says he'll return when the son of promise is born. The particular point of the passage deals particularly with the covenant promises. And the phrase, the time of life, simply means the appointed time, the birth that God ordained would take place, so he shall return. And it's interesting that the three of them are there, but the singular I is used. I will return. Why does the omnipotent God ask the question if he knows everything? He knows where Sarah is. Well, it's the same reason, much the same, as when Adam, where are you? He's drawing out of them and wants to teach them something specific. Sarah would have heard him inquire of her. Did you notice that as we began reading the chapter, that it just says he was sitting by his tent, cooling himself under the tree. It didn't say Abraham. And instead, the focus is on Sarah now. As it had been in previous chapters, it was on Abraham. Here, it's on Sarah. She thought this stranger simply was a stranger. She was not with Abraham when God made the promise. So now, he subtly directs the promise to her and for her benefit. Sarah hears as the latter part of verse 10 states. Then there's a commentary by Moses to remind us that they really are old, they're not able to have children, and then we find Sarah herself laughing. Now, this isn't delight, as Abraham had done before, but in doubt and wonder as to the truth of such an absurd thing. They're just too old. Keep in mind, she did really not know yet that these men were God, and she did not laugh outwardly, but inwardly in her heart. Then God, knowing all things, said to Abraham, knowing full well that Sarah would hear the question, says, and the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh, saying, shall I surely bear a child since I'm old? And at that particular point, fear sets in. Revelation that the stranger is the Lord who knew her heart and questions the motives of her heart. And so he answers her through his speech with Abraham. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you according to the time of life and Sarah shall have a son. God makes it known that he will return at the appointed time when Sarah shall have a son. Why? Because he asks, rhetorically, is anything too hard for the Lord? Literally, the Hebrew is, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Wonders is the extraordinary and supernatural, miraculous works of God which is the climax of the passage. In verse 15, Sarah seems to have come out of the tent and speak to the stranger, saying that she didn't laugh. Fear had set in. She knew it was God. She must have been thinking, how could I have laughed at God? 
and she denies it. And the word means to lie because she forgot what the Lord had promised. Then God rebukes her and corrects her and tells her the truth. Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. He knows the heart of man, and nothing can escape his eyes. And we know later, though, as Hebrews 11.11 says, that she did believe as well. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful who had promised. So at that point, she then has faith. And thus concludes the first 15 verses. The doctrine that I want to pull out of the text is very simple. And it's based on, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Which surrounds the wonders of God. God cannot be or act anything but wonderful. We could, we could apply that to one of his attributes. First Chronicles 16.12 says, Remember his marvelous works, which, we, which he has done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. People should view God as wonderful because everything that he does, which flows out of what he is, is wonderful. God is wonderful. Synonyms for wonderful, extraordinary, marvelous, phenomenal, astounding, Awesome, astonishing, remarkable. These are all words that in comparison to fallen sinners who are filthy, depraved, sinful, rebellious, and evil are quite the opposite. He is the exact contrast to fallen men. Psalm 26.7 says, That I may proclaim with a voice of thanksgiving and tell of your wondrous works. Those devoid of perfection and holiness are not wonderful, they're sinful. Even Isaiah, the most righteous man of his day, the most pious and holy man in Israel, was deemed unholy by his own lips. And so pronounced a curse on himself when he was faced with the wonder of God's holiness. The picture that he has as he saw the train of his robe filling the temple, was one of wonder and majesty. And the angel saying that he was holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah says that he was a man of unclean lips, living amongst the people of unclean lips. God cannot be anything other than wonderful, because he never changes. And he's consistently as wonderful as he was before the world began. Malachi 3.6 says, I, the Lord, do not change. He doesn't change. There is no shadow of turning with him. He is always and forever wonderful, no matter what people think, no matter what happens in the world, no matter how many bad things befall us in one way or another. Well, we might ask some questions. To whom is God wonderful? Well, as the passage teaches us, it's particular to his covenant people. God is wonderful to his people in that particular manner. To know the wonder of God is to know of the blessings of God. 
to know the blessing of knowing God himself and all the things that God accomplishes. God pours out his blessing upon his people, and in return they praise God as wonderful. Yet, our praise isn't what makes him wonderful. He's already wonderful. The psalmist says in 139 verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Sometimes the depth of God's graciousness and his loving hand is so deep that it's unfathomable to us. And we must simply pronounce his ways as wonderful. We are like the mirrors that reflect the wonders of God. As Amos 3.2 says, You, O Israel, have I known, have I loved and elected from all the families of the earth. To know is to have an intimate relationship with God. To know the works and the wonders of God's love and the compassion that he has for his people. So it is to his covenant people that he is wonderful. Why is he wonderful? Well, because of who he is, but also for what he does. He's not only wonderful because he's immutably so, but he's wonderful because of the things that he does for his people as well. We have a very easy time praising God for the things that he does for us. We have a very easy time saying to God, thank you for salvation, thank you for redemption, you have been wonderful in these acts, but we should also be praising him and thanking him simply because he is wonderful in his being. Outward action is always a product of what one is. God is wonderful, so he, can, he has no other choice but to act wonderfully towards his people. His very name is wonderful. Isaiah 9, in verse 6, states that the Messiah's name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace. Wonderful alone is his name. How is God wonderful? Well, God acts wonderfully towards his people, ultimately through the redemption that is found in Jesus Christ, rescuing us and saving us from the fall. God is seen most wonderfully in the most wonderful expression of his character, in holiness and love when he sends his son, Jesus Christ, to die as a sin offering for us. Sarah was a recipient of the wonder of God's promise of the Messiah through the line of Isaac. Giving Isaac to Sarah and Abraham was a wonderful act because it was going to be the line in which the most wonderful act would come, the giving of the Son of God. Jesus himself is the wonder of God. He was extraordinary in every way. The birth narrative of Luke 2 and Matthew 1 demonstrate the extraordinary aspects that surrounded his birth. He was marvelous in every way. He's the capstone of salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. And what is it? It's marvelous in our eyes. He is phenomenal in every way. When he showed forth power in the world as he walked on water. He was astounding with his miracles. He fed 5,000. He cast out demons. He made lepers well. The blind saw, the lame leaped, tongues were loosed, the dead was raised. 
He was astonishing when he taught with authority. And so it was when Jesus had finished these things, the people were astonished. He was remarkable. His death was so remarkable that after he died, a pagan centurion said, surely this was the Son of God. He cleanses us from sin. And if a person doesn't think this to be the most remarkable thing that they've ever heard, then I'm not sure that they have contemplated the cross at any great length and the work of the Messiah at any great length. He takes away our sin and he gives us his righteousness, satisfying as a substitute on our behalf the wrath of God. And his resurrection is nothing short of awesome. Jesus resurrected himself. I am the resurrection and the life. Lazarus was not able to resurrect himself. Jesus had all the power of God and resurrected from the dead and is now at the right hand of God with power. The scriptures over and over and over again attest to the wonder of God. The actual Hebrew idea behind wonder is to be marvelous, to be surpassing, to be extraordinary, separate by a particular distinguishing action, to be simply wonderful. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Even the angel of the Lord, when the angel comes to Samson's parents, and in Judges 13, when they ask what his name is, the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name? Seeing that it's wonderful. It's too unbelievable for you to understand. Psalm 40 and verse 5 says, Many, O Lord my God, are your wonderful works which you have done. Jeremiah says, perhaps the Lord will deal with us according to all his wonderful works, that the king may go away from us. Acts chapter 2, Cretans and Arabs and all sorts of people, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. Matthew 21:15. but when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. How can one be indignant at the wonders of God? At the covenant mediator riding in. Christians should never laugh at the covenant promises or the words of the covenant God like Sarah did. Because those things are wonderful. People who call themselves Christians do. They not only laugh at God, but they reject much of his word to suit their own kingdom instead of God's, much like the Pharisees did. Laughing is scoffing at God. It is disbelief. It's really a secret atheism when Christians reject the reality and truth to the wonders of God's word. Second Chronicles 30 and verse 10 says, So the runners passed from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh as far as Zebulun, but they laughed at them and mocked them. That's the kind of laughing that the scriptures bring over and over and over when someone laughs. Sarah changed her ways and said, 
God has made me laugh, and all who hear will laugh with me. And Isaac, which means laughter. Back from Genesis 21, another three chapters away. God, however, often laughs at his enemies. Psalm 2 and verse 4, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Psalm 59 and verse 8, But you, O Lord, shall laugh at them. You shall have all the nations in derision. 80% of the passages that deal with laughter in the Bible are applied to God laughing at his enemies. How wrong would it be then to laugh and scoff at God's word, at God's covenant promises? Instead, Christians should see everything that God says and does as wonderful. For us, we often have to be reminded of his wonderfulness. Jesus is the epitome of God's wonder. And we are to constantly fill our minds and heart with Christ. Set your mind on the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We are to do, as we read in Luke 2, what Mary did, and what she did was she held all of these things in her heart. She pondered them, kept them in her heart. The passage that we read in Luke 2 says that twice that Mary did that. The entirety of the Christian life is contemplation and experience and an obedience to the wonderfulness of God in the person of Christ. It's a great contemplation that we have. Our minds are to be captivated with high thoughts of God. Make me understand the way of your precepts so I shall meditate on your wonderful works. Why? Is there anything that's too wonderful for the Lord? High thoughts of God are set in the context often of worship. Our life is to experience that wonder. And we are to contemplate that wonder. You shall praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you. Joel chapter 2 verse 26. We are to be obedient to all the wonderful things that we see God doing in our life. And those who truly see God as wonderful, obey him. And the Lord said to Moses, when you go back into Egypt, see that you do all those wonders before Pharaoh which I have put in your hand. Because Christ empowers his people to be obedient through his miraculous, wonderful power. Shall we name all the miracles done by the church in the New Testament? They were called signs and wonders. The apostles were particularly given the ability to attest to the message of the gospel, these signs and wonders during that age to demonstrate the wonderful works of God. And yet, how do we then? partake of those wonders. Well, we don't partake by miracles or signs and wonders that were done by the apostles for solidifying the preached word in the apostolic era, specifically with the early church. Rather, we partake of God's wonderful nature by means of grace. Since we are children of God, God will work wonders in our midst, if we're really looking. The day your car broke down and God made provision for you. The day you missed your flight to find out later that possibly the plane had crashed or had a problem. The day you felt spiritually deserted 
and God visited you with his spirit while you were having devotions. The day the Lord expanded your mind to understand new doctrine that you didn't understand before. The day that you may have been called into ministry. Whatever the day or whatever the circumstance, as believers, we have to see that God's dealings with us are simply wonderful. God doesn't have to deal with any of us, does he? He doesn't have to deal with us at any point and in any way. But we say the same as Joshua said in chapter 3, verse 5. And Joshua said to the people, Sanctify yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Those things which are magnificent or excellent or splendid. A real test of Christianity is to ask yourself, do I see the wonders of God in my life? Litmus tests are very easy, but they demonstrate very blatant results. God can be seen in the preaching of the word and its covenant promises. He can be seen in the sacraments, which are wonderful. He can be seen in the saints as wonderful, although that sometimes is hard. He can be seen in children themselves in which Christ says he has ordained praise. He could be seen in the things that are made as wonderful. It's very simple what the strangers said to Abraham and Sarah when they were sitting there, listening. Is anything too wonderful for God? Do you believe that God can be wonderful in your own life? Is he wonderful? Do you regard him as wonderful? Are all the providences that he brings you that which are wonderful. We should look to salvation first as the most wonderful thing that God has ever done in our life. And yet, all of the things that he continues to put up with in each of us, knowing full well that we are sinners and knowing full well that we disappoint him at every turn and knowing full well that we are not perfect, yet God still ministers to us in all of the difficulties in our life. It's interesting whenever you talk with people in general, the fall always comes up. It's always about how sick they are, or how they feel, or how tough life is, or it's always something to do with the fall. Imagine if instead we were to shift our focus a little bit, and when we begin talking with people, instead of talking about how difficult life is, and how we wish we had this or wish we had that, that instead we talked about how wonderful God was today. How wonderful he has worked in our midst. Sarah laughed. She laughed at God being wonderful, which was quite wrong for her to do. It was sin for her to do. Rather, afterwards, she's a testimony to the reality that she took that and reversed it and says, now God has made me laugh. And forever, as the Israelites would have read about Isaac, they would have remembered the wonderful nature of God. Because of exactly what God said to them. Is anything too wonderful? Anything too hard? Anything too impossible? Anything too wonderful for me? I am the God of wonders, the Lord tells us in this passage. So that regardless of what we see, what we do, what have, what's happened to us in the course of a day, how good or bad things might be, 
we should be looking to see how wonderful he is because he promises to us as a covenant God who keeps his promises that he will be wonderful. The same promise that was given to Sarah is given to us. Is anything too wonderful for him? Nothing is. Let's pray and ask that the Lord would grant us grace to remember in every part of our day that he is wonderful. Mighty God, something that we don't regularly think about is how wonderful you are. We may have gone out to eat and it was a wonderful meal. And we may have visited friends and it was a wonderful visitation. And we may have spent time with our loved ones and it might have been a wonderful night. Lord, let us be reminded, as it was so reminded very blatantly with Sarah, that there's nothing that's too wonderful for you to accomplish in our midst because you are the God who keeps all of your covenant promises with your people. And you have promised to be with us to the end of the age. We so ask that you would minister that thought to us so that throughout this week when we have a tough time in our family, at work, riding in our car, going to the grocery store, thinking about bills, whatever it happens to be, that we would recall and remember that you are wonderful and that there's nothing that's impossible for you. You've saved us. You've redeemed us. You've made us whole. How could we ever doubt how wonderful you are? And we so ask that you would answer us and help us to dedicate ourselves this week to you, the wonderful God, in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten dash thirty seven A Avenue, Edmonton. That's E D M O N T O N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A capital B, Canada, T six L three T five. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions 
than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.